The following sermon was delivered on Sunday, October 10th, 2021, at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Andover by the Reverend Callie Fire. The title of the sermon is Separation is Illusion. Here begins the sermon. We who dwell on the margins know about divisions, arbitrary and intentional, like land, like class, like culture. We make sharp borders around ourselves, pieces of ourselves, and we blur the edges by being who we are, by expanding the circle. Beyond binaries, we multiply possibilities, languages, customs, practices, rituals, and ceremonies. Not one narrative, but shared stories. Separation is illusion. Love transgresses borders between me and you, between you and me, between us and them, between secular and sacred. We need trust to strengthen our connection. We must dare to cross from my world into yours, your world into mine, from here to out there. until we begin to weave a tapestry of faith and wonder aloud, whose are we? What is a nation? Who can own the earth? The words of Reverend Wendy Bartel. So consider these words of Reverend Bartel carefully. Separation is illusion. We draw sharp borders of which we blur the edges by expanding a circle. Yet simultaneously, Wendy speaks of not one narrative, but shared stories. It's a bit like a paradox. How do we see separation as illusion, as a merely perception? In other words, it's not really separation. But still, we create multiple possibilities. And this is the nuance of cultural competency and cultural diversity. So tomorrow, several states and municipalities across the country will celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. For some, it is an alternative to Columbus Day. Some will figure out how to celebrate that together. Although it was first introduced nearly 30 years ago in 1992, it is still not a widespread or national holiday. And at least 13 states do not acknowledge or celebrate it. Massachusetts is among those who have not passed a statewide legislation acknowledging indigenous peoples on this day. However, there are individual communities within the state who do have their own proclamations. This past Friday, President Biden signed for the very first time in 29 years, the first US presidential proclamation declaring October 11th to be Indigenous Peoples Day. The proclamation states in part, our country was conceived on a promise of equality and opportunity for all people, a promise that despite the extraordinary progress we have made through the years, we have never fully lived up to. This is especially true when it comes to upholding the rights and dignity of indigenous people who were here long before colonization of the Americas began. For generations, federal policies systematically lost and displaced native, native cultures. On Indigenous Peoples Day, we 
honor America's first inhabitant, the tribal nations that celebrate and recognize the many indigenous communities and cultures that make up our great country. So the language of the presidential proclamation makes reference to the systematic devastating effects of colonialism and colonization of the Americas, as well as establishing the heritage, the long lived heritage of indigenous cultures as the first people of this land. This language is an important step in a public acknowledgement of much needed reevaluation of what we know of the history of colonization, of conquest, and the continuing existence of native cultures in America. Most students across the United States don't get comprehensive, thoughtful, or even accurate education in Native American history and culture. Smithsonian Magazine cites a 2015 study by researchers at Pennsylvania State University, which found that 87% of content taught about Native Americans includes only pre-1900 content, nothing since the 1900s. And 27 states did not even name any individual Native Americans in their history standards. So it can be demonstrated that these American curricula are about Native American history that is decidedly one-sided regarding the details of conquest with broadly distilled and generic knowledge of significant histories such as the Trail of Tears, the Thanksgiving story, the and government treaties and identities of native tribes. This has resulted in an image of American Indians as a monolithic group of singular culture, which ceases to exist at the turn of the century as well as a poor understanding of the social, political, economic, and agricultural devastation of the colonizing conquest. We heard this in our story for all ages, the pieces that I read to you, that this story was a look back at Native Americans. This paints that this is a culture that failed to continue to thrive beyond 1900. So let's follow what history has actually learned about the evolution of colonization, parts that we haven't been taught. By the time the Europeans reached the Atlantic shores of North America of this country, not far from here, they were already well experienced, practiced in centuries of conquest, centuries of conquest. They have had been equally perpetrated and experienced violence, expropriation, destruction, and dehumanization through North Africa, through the Middle East, and through other parts of Europe. All of this began around the 13th to 15th centuries, 11th to 13th, excuse me, 11th to 13th centuries. Colonizing human populations of the Americas was not a perfect storm of accidental or experimental or incidental events. It in fact was a well-oiled machine of oppression, and extermination. The religious zeal of the Crusades was the beginning, was driven by papal-sponsored mercenary groups who were given the right to turn and turned loose upon domestic, oh, sorry, they were given the right to sack and loot Muslim communities who were then, and then they were then turned on domestic heretics among the European poor commoners. 
generally targeting women or the witches. With these religious overtones, there was an enlisting of the very same commoners with who, against whom they were looting, uniting the commoners with the small wealthy elite who were coming back from fighting the Crusades. So they were turning them against each other and creating this alignment, disparate alignment of classes against a united common scourge. Industrialization and commercial production in the British area of British Isles resulted in specifically resulted in the development of land privatization. Previously accessible commons lands were closed, privatized. Often these were purchased by crusaders coming back with their new wealth and from the conquests, and they created a private commercial use of these formerly previously common lands. So forced away from the lands that they had farmed for food, the places where they had grazed their animals, there's now poor subsistence farmers in Europe who have no choice but to take jobs at the newly growing and developing textile mills, jobs that were miserable, jobs that didn't pay well, if they could find jobs because there weren't that many. So now this large displaced population and unemployed and their descendants became a desperate, if not willing supply of indentured servants to bring here to populate this new colony in North America, established as squatters on indigenous land with the promise of becoming private landowners themselves when their terms of indenture were satisfied. Commonly elevated in the American colonial history is an idea known as the terminal narratives, which attributes a rapid depopulation of native communities due to illness or as the root of the near total transfer of indigenous lands to Euro American ownership. Scholars such as Benjamin Keene, William Devin, uh, Denovan, and others uh, consider this a fatalistic explanation that fails to consider all other socioeconomic factors. They point to the extensive history of evidence of wars between tribes and settlers, warfare between tribes that was fueled and encouraged by settlers, often with European allies either aiding or contributing on both sides. The interruption, the disruption, the infiltration of indigenous trade routes, destabilizing the social structure and, and making them poor and just as they had done with the, the farmers in Europe. The kidnapping of nearly 4,000 Indian children between 1852 and 1865 in California. The devastation of family lines of matriarchal societies through economic hardship, which forced women into um, prostitution. So if a poor immunity, if a poor resistance to both illness and alcoholism is also another pervasive aspect of this argument, that this was another part of the weakness. If this was sufficient enough to explain colonization, then why is so much energy and effort directed to these other factors? There's enough to be supported by historical record. 
Author Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz writes, proponents of the default position emphasize attrition by disease despite other causes which are equally deadly, if not more so. In doing so, they refuse to accept that the colonization of America was genocide by plan, not simply the tragic fate of populations taking um, tackling, yeah, populations lacking immunity to disease, excuse me. So this is not the history we learned in school, right? I didn't learn any of this. And not much has changed about that education as we talked about earlier. Despite changing the opinion of historians based on including these additional contributing factors to the data, in most cases, we are being encouraged to embrace the tragic fate default position and that we, sh we should ask, why is that? And what is the benefit? Why are we being encouraged to believe in this weakness? Certainly this historical explanation is the more palatable option, right? It, especially for people who are attached today in present day, attached to the guilt, with guilt to the behavior of their ancestors. You see a lot of that, right? You hear, oh, I'm not, oops, I'm not that person. I didn't, I wasn't here. I'm not responsible for these things. It's misplaced guilt. We don't have to be guilty for the actions of our ancestor. And therefore it's not justifiable to deny that, that those things actually happened. A tragic fate position is also the least damaging perspective to the prevailing structures of systemic racism which is perpetrating colonization because we are still colonizing today. Yes, in this country. During the past months of the pandemic, my adult millennial and Zendu children and I have kept um, together in contact on a group chat. And as a result, I have been assimilated into the social media platform, TikTok, <laughs> where content creators produce short videos of a minute to three minutes. And honestly, it sets on autoplay and it just will keep feeding. <laughs> this is controlled by an interactive, an interactive algorithm. It is both the bane of my existence and an endless dopamine supply that tickles the ADHD of my brain. And I'm not kidding, I got a timer to keep myself in line. <laughs> I turn it on. Um, so, I've learned a lot from the TikTok content is searchable you know, through different levels. And so I have searched for a variety and a diversity of creators and several of them are native and indigenous creators that I've sought out and, and ones who are using the platform to educate and to teach. I've learned quite a bit from them. Um, Modern Warrior is one that I really like to follow who's very grounded and very, he's actually, an educator learning to teach these things. So he uses his platform to practice and see how things land. He's known as Lance in real life. He's an indigenous member of the Navajo Nation and he's become renowned for bringing attention and education specifically to the ways colonization impacts indigenous communities today. Often he opens some of his videos with the tagline, hey colonizer letting people know who the message is specifically for. So Lance and several other of these indigenous creators introduce and remind those of us who are 
consuming their content of things such as losses to indigenous culture, including languages that have been lost forever that we cannot get back. Entire generational lineages that have been eradicated. Species of animals that have been destroyed that we cannot get back, that were part of the culture of agriculture and farming and um, resources and food supply for these cultures. Irreparable changes to mountains and lands that were held sacred to indigenous tribes. One can question whether those were intentionally desecrated. Also the persistent pillaging of native lands for natural resources, specifically fuels and metals. Currently there is the line three protests, um, a Canadian and American pipeline joint project. There's a Dominga iron mine project in Humboldt archipelago off the coast of Chile. Also, these are just a couple that are active right now. There's also governmental overreach. I just learned a couple of weeks ago that immediately on the heels of the Texas act to ban um, abortions and the attack on women's bodies, Texas also requested of the Supreme Court to strike down the Indian Child Welfare Act within the state. This has only been there since 1972. What it does is protects indigenous people in terms of um, child welfare and in adoption. So when, where, and how the children of native and indigenous people can be adopted where they, it's, it's designed to keep the, these generational lines intact and Texas has appealed to have that lifted. What does that sound like? I mean, there were like the 4,000 children that were kidnapped earlier. I think we're backtracking. The existing colonies that we currently hold in the United States, the territories of American Samoa, of Guam, of Puerto Rico, the Northern Mariana Islands and the US Virgin Islands and the misappropriation of indigenous cultural rituals and practices. So when these things are pointed out and the impacts to the cultures and people and lands are revealed, it's easy to recognize the patterns of colonization, the insidiousness, the violence, the expropriation, the destruction, the dehumanization that is perpetrated by a dominant power structure, which has been systematically evasive and non-committal about these very actions. Admittedly though, it can be a bit trickier to identify cultural misappropriation. Often people will use the adage that imitation is the highest form of flattery to justify adoption of some of the most appealing aspects of another culture. So again, from Mike Johnson, who we heard in our reading today, non-Indigenous people who seek to reconnect with the earth must be aware of the dangerous problem of spiritual theft. On the one hand, we have much to learn from Native peoples about the land and about what it means to honor our relationship to the land. We must take our land, we must take our lead from those who have been living here for millennia who have the knowledge that comes from being born to this place. 
and they have shared much of their knowledge with all of us. But in our search for help, we can also do damage because of the context of the broken bonds between us, because of ongoing societal oppression and colonization. Native spiritual traditions are not for sale. They are inextricably woven into the network of the relationships of Native communities and of the particular lands on which those communities have thrived. Spirituality is a fundamental element of the Native struggle against the destruction of their cultures and homes, perhaps their most important recess, resource to heal their own broken connections with the land and with their ancestors. Their spiritual traditions are not meant to be exported piecemeal for some other purpose, however earnest that purpose may be. So I think for me, what helps me to understand what we forget, what we've become detached from because of the controlled limits of our education and our understanding of indigenous and other cultures experiences is the context of native cultural elements. It was, in, it was 1924 before indigenous Americans were granted full citizenship to this country, to this country, which they never left, to which they've always belonged. In the 1960s, it was common for non-natives to engage in elements of indigenous traditions and faith practices, things that were, again, those things that innocently, they look attractive and they appeal to us. It brings us connection to the earth. However, it would be 1974 before Native Americans were granted the religious freedom to practice legally their own religious faith while non-natives are running around doing exactly what they are not allowed to do. They were literally punished and beaten for openly displaying the same elements that we might find exotically attractive. Residential schools across Canada, as we have been seeing in the news in the United States, actively forbade the speaking of native languages, wearing traditional clothing or religious or tribal ritual items, Names were changed and Christianized and hair was cut. We did everything to make them not be who they were. Children were beaten for disobeying. The, the mass graves that were discovered in Canada earlier this year, currently the graves count to about 1300, but reading through records of the schools, the total deaths, based on this documentation are estimated to be around 6,000, 6,000 children. Again, we also had 4,000 that we kidnapped in the 1850s. The, the loss of life in Canada is from the 1950s, right? So every hundred years or so. But this is a start learning, understanding. Gail Forsyth Vale, who speaks often here with this congregation, tells us the first step is awareness, being aware not only of issues at hand, but also ourselves, our assumptions, and the holes in our knowledge of our own history. The next question is, how do we put this awareness to best use? We can look at how we educate children in our communities. 
rights of Native Americans have been overlooked due to the deliberate denial of our United States history regarding the indigenous people on our lands. We can raise public awareness on the ways in which the history is being taught in our schools and what is not the same history that Native Americans have actually experienced. We can support affirming the rights of indigenous peoples to exist as nations and to make our position known to elected representatives, to government officials, campaigning candidates who are currently, you know, whoever's running for office. And we can make our positions known in public spaces. Specifically here in Massachusetts, we can support the Indigenous Peoples Campaign, Indigenous Peoples Day campaign, which is directing legislation for statewide acknowledgement of Indigenous Peoples Day. Also, we can contribute to supporting the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. They are still waiting on a final decision uh, to uh, reverse the Department of Interior's 2018 refusal to reaffirm their identity as a reservation. And that status has passed the US House in 2019, but it has been stalemated and slowed because of the pandemic. So they wait Senate approval. Each day, each year that is, this delay continues is causing a severe hardship to the Mashpee Wampanoag community because of the loss of their federal status. We can ask ourselves, what is the relationship we have with tribal governments regarding natural resources in our community, our state, and our nations? Is our government taking into account the sovereignty of indigenous people around issues of natural resources? This speaks to you know, the pipelines and the mines that I mentioned earlier, exploration of oil drilling in native territories. We can also learn about indigenous cultures and religious practices. We can explore those elements that appeal to us in order to learn and appreciate the context which those elements teach and the spirituality which they provide. And then those lessons we can bring back to our own culture and our own perspective. How can what appeals to us from another's cultural point of view provide us transformative experience in our own cultural perspective, our own cultural orientation. Bell Hooks writes, beloved community is formed not by the eradication or the assimilation of difference, but by its affirmation, by each of us claiming the identities and cultural legacies that shape who we are and how we live in this world. And this is how we, separation is an illusion, but yet we have togetherness with shared stories rather than blended together as one. So this is where we start. We are but one congregation and this challenge is immense, but we are not alone. We are part of a larger movement of people and congregations with shared values and principles. So we must work together. As a liberal community, we can take the work, take on the work of becoming concerned allies and stand in solidarity with our First Nations neighbors. Unconditional love is not so much about how we receive and endure each other as it is about the deep vow to never under any condition stop bringing the flawed truth of who we are to each other.